0: as ever, welcome to Brooklands. Thank you for being here and supporting the Trust. Um, A special warm welcome to our guests. I hope you're enjoying the evening and it's good to see you. I'd particularly like to welcome some people. First of all, uh, Sally Jocelyn and her family, you're very welcome to be here. Um, Ron Ayres and Richard Noble, both very welcome and good to see you. For those of you who don't know me, and most of you do by now, I'm Steve Clark, and I have the pleasure of organising and hosting these events along with the team. Now, apart from the microphone issue tonight, I was quite a happy man. We have the perfect place, the perfect audience, and I think the perfect subject this evening. So, will you welcome the perfect presenter, Carl Ludvigsen?
1: Thank you so much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's a real pleasure to be with you this evening. I uh, am so excited to be talking to you about Reed Railton. Uh, let's just start um, back at, um, at Cherry Tree House in Alderley Edge in Cheshire. Uh, Reed was born in 1895, and uh, here we see him uh, a few now a few years later on the back lawn of the house uh, with various uh, hoops and uh, tracks and devices and so on, uh, setting up a, uh, a, a track of some kind. We don't know the details, but it's clearly a, a, a motor track. Uh, he did build a kind of soapbox derby car in his youth. We don't have pictures of that, unfortunately. We do, however, have him behind the wheel of the family's new uh, Sunbeam 2530 horsepower car. This was the top of the Sunbeam range, an 800-pound automobile in 1912, railed 17. He's just checking out the controls and making sure everything is in order. Uh, he studied at the University of Manchester, as it would be called today. It had a little different name in those days. But he graduated with honors in mechanical engineering. Uh, he immediately was uh, given an apprenticeship at Leyland in, up in Lancashire. And, um, and, and then uh, completing the apprenticeship, he was, uh, he was made uh, assistant to Perry Thomas. Who was uh, chief engineer uh, he shared in a way ch- the chief engineering with another chap but he was he was in charge of the design and engineering of of Leyland products. The Leyland people got it into their heads that uh, around nineteen uh, seventeen or there that they should be in the airplane engine business because they're in the middle of the war or the uh, the uh, air force uh, the uh, the RAF as it became uh, needed engines for the aircraft. And uh, the people at Leyland had given this job to another fellow. Uh, and uh, when uh, Perry Thomas came in around that time, he said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm going to design the engine from scratch. And the Leyland people said, fine, which was interesting because he had never designed an engine in his life. Uh, but they, he came up with Railton's help with a uh, a uh, 7.2, uh, no, 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 that's not right. A uh, an aero engine, an X8 design, practically all aluminium, uh, overhead cams, shaft-driven overhead cams, it's and a, and a built-in uh, starter motor uh, next to the crank. Um, it it had a, a system of water cooling through the crankshaft to the main bearings, etc. <laughs> an extraordinarily advanced and uh, amazingly light engine for its time. Uh, it it uh, Railton was called away to the service during the development of this engine, so he didn't take part in all of it, but he had uh, quite a bit to do with it. Uh, it did not make production. It was a bit late uh, in, in wartime, and it didn't uh, reach uh, production, but it was a fantastic technical exercise, as was, The next thing that Leyland decided to do, which was to make a luxury car. Uh, After the war, a number of companies, Guy, a truck maker, started making a luxury car. And uh, Leyland did the same. Um, uh, Here's Perry Thomas, who was, of course, chief engineer of this effort on the Leyland 8. Um, He, as Railton would put it, thought everything through from scratch. There was no, oh, we'll do it like other people do it with, uh, with the Perry Thomas. Here he is at the wheel of his, uh, one of his test, test cars for the Ray- Leyland 8. Uh, this was a 7.2 liter uh, straight eight, one of the very first straight eights um, to be made in the UK. Uh, it hasn't always been given credit for that. The features of the car, which was called the Lion of Olympia by the press in 1920, and in 1921 it was called the first supercar. And it really was a supercar. The, uh, uh, it had a torsion bar, uh, anti roll bars front and rear, uh, at the rear, compound torsion bar and leaf spring suspension. Uh, uh, all aluminum engine. Uh, was, nothing in the car was standard. Absolutely, all of it was dreamed up from scratch by Perry Thomas and Railton. They shared quarters in uh, in, in the area, and they'd spend uh, spend late nights talking about what they were going to do with the Leyland uh, Eight. And just an idea of the uh, beauty and. And uh, the, the engineering that went into the chassis, uh, that's a sports version with uh, lightened frame members, of course. And uh, it had vacuum assisted brakes, uh, uh, one of the very first uses of, of vacuum assistance uh, known. Uh, throughout, the car was a work of art, really. Uh, it did not do much in the way of business for Leyland. After the war, they made about 18 cars in total. But it did give uh, Railton a trip to India, because uh, a, a chap out there, one of the uh, top uh, uh, sahibs, uh, bought a, uh, two of them. And, uh, and uh, Railton went out to instruct the mechanics on how to maintain these cars, which were pretty elaborate. Um, Just a quick look at the engine. Uh, It used uh, three uh, connecting rods to drive the overhead camshaft. All the passages were cast into the uh, uh, block. You can see the inlet and exhaust passages were all integral with the block of the engine. Uh, Single overhead cam operating through um, uh, rocker arms, which um, for which it was only one cam lobe. So the cam lobe operated both the inlet and exhaust uh, valves. The uh, rear axle, he wanted to have an axle that had a slight positive camber, which is the same as Daimler or Mercedes did at that time, which was better to deal with the crown road surfaces of the day. So, um, but he didn't do it the way Daimler did it. He, He did it partly the way they did, which is with two ring gears and pinions, but he put the differential at the input to the uh, to the, uh, uh, the differentials at the input to the uh, the axle gears right here. So, uh, and very good-looking cars. Uh, as I say, there were town cars, roadsters, cabriolets produced. And Leyland, I think, made the last cars sometime around 1925 or thereabouts. But uh, Thomas was an, was a fascinating man. He uh, didn't know how to drive before he started this uh, lark with uh, Leyland, but he, uh, he he caught up very quickly. Uh, he learned uh, to be a pretty darn good driver, and the the, the attraction of Brooklands was too great. Uh, so at one point he said uh, to the uh, chaps at Leyland, look, I'd like to take one of our cars and just uh, you know, drop off some accessories and sort of lighten it a bit. And then we can show people at Brooklyn's how quick it is and how reliable and so forth. We'll do some demonstrations. And one thing led to another. And pretty soon the car you see there looked like this. <laughs> And you can see it's the same basic car. The, uh, the frame frame is the same, and uh, the, the anti-roll bars are in place and so on. Uh, but here it's being tested on the road with, uh, with uh, Railton riding uh, side saddle with, uh, with Perry Thomas. And this was, at, at the time, one of the fastest cars at uh, Brooklands. It was capable of lapping in the, in the high 120s, around 130. Uh, and uh, uh, Thomas raced it very successfully uh, against uh, you know, heavy, heavyweight rivals in, in, at Brooklands. There's another shot of uh, Thomas with uh, Railton in the car uh, during some testing that they were carrying out. Uh, Thomas was a meticulous tester. Except he would not test on Fridays. Fridays were off limits for him. He didn't, didn't do any testing on Fridays. I don't know why, but he, he had some reason for doing that. Um, after the war, um, this was getting into about 1923, when uh, he'd built this racing version of the Leyland. And the Leyland people said to him, Perry, we, we love you. But you either have to be our chief engineer, or you have to be a racing driver. And he'd really been hooked by Brooklyns. And so he, took, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll leave, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll uh, uh, take up racing at Brooklyns. And he did um, with, uh, with success. And and uh, his assistant, Railton, left at the same time. Um, they they had access at the time to some new development engines that Leyland had about one and a half liter four cylinder overhead cam engines, and that resulted in certain number. Uh, Perry Thomas used them for some vehicles, and uh, um, uh, Railton took one, and modified it in two liter form, uh, and put it in a uh, an available chassis um and uh, and uh, this is the result and this is about 1924 uh and the sr special he did this together with henry spurrier the third who was about his age and was a, a a a leyland son of a leyland uh chief and uh, this became the the spurrier railton special and he he wrote on the back of this picture this is the first car that I made. This is my first car, really. Um, and uh, from that development of the engine for that car, he produced the power unit for the, his own car, uh, which was the Arab, which he arranged for the complete he did the complete design and production of this car. The engine was, uh, as I say, a two liter uh, overhead cam. Uh, this one has a single carburetor. some had twin carburetors um they uh, 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 and they uh, got a very good press uh, comments. They never appeared in any motor show uh, they were they were produced in in uh, in various body styles. this is one of the arabs, a very handsome uh, coupe um, they were uh, raced by private uh, owners this was at uh, I think, uh, mm, Shelsley. I think no Prescott. I think, yeah, Shelsley. Yeah, okay, um, and uh, did quite well there. He also produced a, a short uh, and low, uh, sh- a, sh- a, sh- sorry, a uh, low uh, profile version of the Arab, which is a pretty rakish uh, proposition. Uh, there were only two of these made, and these were really made. Um, at uh, a later date, 19, around 1927, which was a, a crucial year for uh, Railton because that's the year that his friend Perry Thomas um, crashed at Pendine Sands in the Babs record car that is out here in, the, uh, in the, one of the garages. Um, Railton uh, was not there at the time, but he arrived very soon afterward. And assisted in trying to figure out exactly what had caused the the uh, crash. Um, re, uh, Perry Thomas had uh, uh, property at uh, at Brooklands. He had a uh, a, uh, a a house, not really a house. It's kind of a, a, a bungalow um, called the Hermitage, where he lived, and he had uh, you know workshop facilities here. And he was assisted by uh, Ken Thompson, a New Zealander, uh, helped him with business matters, and uh, Ken uh, Taylor, who was an excellent machinist and mechanic. And they had been working with uh, Thomas. And they had the idea of setting up on their own, sort of taking over the Thomas uh, patrimony, if you will, and forming Thompson and Taylor engineers. and uh, That was all very well. They could do that. They managed that quite effectively, but they didn't have a chief engineer. And uh, here was Railton sort of getting on with his Arab car and so forth. Uh, And they talked it over, and he became the chief engineer of Thompson and Taylor in 1927. And the last Arabs were built uh, at TNT uh, here at uh, Brooklands. Um, Another quite different project was underway at the time that Reed arrived at TNT. This was uh, backed by the uh, Riley Company, the building of a special sporting car using the 1.1 liter Riley uh, overhead valve engine, which was proving to be a terrific little engine. Uh, As as probably most of you know, it, it was quite sensationally lively for its size, uh, had high placed uh, camshafts with rocker arms to the inclined valves and so on. Very, very neat little engine. And, and uh, the Riley people said, yes, let's, uh, let's see what you can do down there at TNT in making a sporting version. And uh, this was supposed to have been, the, the story of this was started by Perry Thomas, but it wasn't really. Nothing had been done to speak of uh, when Thomas died. So, Railton got to work on it. And uh, here he's demonstrating the, uh, the uh, lowness to the ground of the first prototype of the Riley Brooklyns. Um, uh, in, this, in this car, as you can see, he, uh, he, he sank the seats below the frame. The frame ran right along here and very high, much as in the standard car. And then it was tweaked together at the back. Um, and but that 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 is the prototype, and he raced that car at Brooklands quite successfully. Uh, this is one of he made a few racing efforts at Brooklands, and this was one of them. it, uh, it lapped very close to 100 miles an hour, which for a 1.1 liter car was regarded as sensational at the time. But uh, he wasn't satisfied with that approach, and so he went. He used some of his uh, his experience with the. Um, with the uh, Arab, and the Arab, uh, the frame of this sports model was very low. It was just really low in it, and it was uh, underslung at the rear. And then it went up to the engine bearers. And he used the same technique for the the production uh, Riley Brooklands, Um, with the frame down at the bottom, underslung at the back, and then curving up at the front to, to join the, uh, in, the the built-in bearers of the Riley Four, and here he is with uh, one of the four cars that T T prepared to uh, compete in the uh, TT in Ireland in 1928. Uh, uh, a a uh, Brooklyn Riley did win, but it wasn't one of the uh, winners' class. But it wasn't one of the uh, the works-prepared cars. Um, the uh, TNT people became very involved in racing these cars they uh, uh, you know, managed teams managed the pits and prepared the cars for racing for Riley and Riley uh, liked it so much and uh, realized that they had a hot property on their hands so after 20 were made by TNT Riley took over the production of the the Brooklands, as it became known. I, th- I don't know how many were made. Someone may know, something more than 100, certainly. Um, another job around that time was a special one-off or two-off, I think, for um, Daimler. Uh, Daimler had, as you may remember, a big adventure with slide- sleeve valve engines. And they, they had a big sleeve valve uh, 12-cylinder, 7.1 liters, 150 horsepower. And they had a few lying around. And they had the idea of uh, they had a customer or two in mind. And they, they engaged t and and Railton to design a chassis that would be a low slung chassis that would use this engine. Um, and this is, this is the first of the ones that, that he did. I think this still has a conventional uh, gearbox. But the ultimate car, uh, as produced, had a, a preselector gearbox. And this is, this is around um, 1930. And this is just the time that people were starting to use preselectors. And Railton at uh, t and was a pioneer in the adaptation of preselector transmissions to uh, motor cars of various kinds. Uh, he came up with a very unusual way at the, at the rear. Of, uh, of having an underslung frame, underslung springs, and uh, very, very compact uh, design at the back of the uh, car, uh, to uh, you know, a tubular structure back here to hold the, hold the, uh, the rear spring mounts and the uh, heavy tires and so forth. So, and this produced, ultimately, uh, one of the most phenomenal looking automobiles ever to take the road. Uh, really, a stunning car. I think. I think there is some controversy about how many there were. Were there one? Were there two? Were there three? Um, I, I tend to favor two, but uh, you could get uh, with when you get with Daimler people. There's a lot of different speculation about it. But this this car still exists in this form, and it's a, it's a concourse winner wherever it chooses to go. Uh, a wonderful uh, machine. Now a, a, a new engine enters the the uh, TNT world. This is a cross section of the uh, Napier uh, Lion engine. It was a W12, three banks of four cylinders. Uh, this is the racing version. I could, you know, there's a, I have pictures of the, uh, the 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 regular version in the book of course, but the the this this one made for for originally for aircraft racing this was made for the schneider trophy racing in in uh, um, uh, amphibian aircraft and particularly for the uh, aircraft use they wanted to make it as compact as possible so it has very short connecting rods l- short links to the side uh, cylinders and so forth everything was made more compact the very tight Coverage and the engine, and so forth, the ball bearing uh, for the uh, uh, crankshaft, uh, main bearings, and so forth. The, the Napier Lion turned out to be a really, really good engine, a very versatile and useful in a lot of different uh, uh, vehicles, as we will see later on. Uh, it was so good that it spoiled Napier. They they went into the 30s not developing any new engines and uh, eventually this kind of caught up with them and they they uh, they, they were then they, they tried to rush ahead of themselves and anyway it didn't didn't help there in the long run it didn't help but in the short run they made a lot of money out of the uh, Napier lion the uh, use of the Napier lion the uh, the uh, let me just check my notes. Yeah, the, 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 uh, the first Napier Lion that Brailton had contact with was the supercharged version, also developed for the uh, Schneider Trophy racing. And uh, uh, on uh, the genius that he was in terms of getting things from people, Malcolm Campbell got the loan of one of these engines uh, for a land speed record effort. Uh, and uh, he, he, had, he, had, he had put one in a car, um, but it hadn't performed ext- very well. And uh, he, he, he came to talk to Railton about it. Um, it had been developed originally by Amherst Villiers, uh, Joseph Maena, and so forth. And, he, and it hadn't really done justice to the engine. And he came to see Railton, and they talked about it. And, and uh, pretty soon, the, the car was hauled up to TNT, and uh, Railton and Railton uh, and Taylor started to get to, get to grips with it. Um, this is the car under construction. This is what, what we call Bluebird 3. The, the, these are not official numbers, but they give an idea of the stage of development of, of the car. Uh, the big job that Railton had with the Bluebird 3 uh, was to uh, lower the driving seat. And he did this by making an offset rear axle and, and a transmission that drove through the, uh, the, uh, the input shaft was low, and, it, and it, it was all in direct gear. So it drove through, through all the gears to the output shaft, uh, driving shaft. Um, so that allowed the driver to sit much lower in the car. And here's here's Reed with uh, Ken Tom, uh, Thompson, uh, Ken Taylor, uh, Malcolm Campbell, of course. And here's Railton in his his typical posture. Don't don't look at me. I'm not important. Nobody's. I didn't do anything. I'm just just uh, you know you just happened to catch me here by mistake. You know he's a very very self-effacing individual. Um, and you'll see this again, <laughs> this uh, posture. Anyway, um, this, this became the power unit of Bluebird uh, 3. Um, and uh, in 1931, they uh, achieved 240, almost 246 miles an hour with this at Daytona. And in 1932, almost uh, 254. So pretty good going uh, with the, the engine and car. Um, and, and just uh, this is a view of this Napier-powered uh, Bluebird 3, which in my view is one of the prettiest of the land speed record cars, uh, certainly of this era. A very handsome uh, automobile, here being demonstrated. Where? At Brooklands, of course. Now, Campbell, next, uh, as, 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 as Railton wrote somewhere, he said, you can imagine as an engine engineer who was settling back and reflecting on the result of a job well done, uh, he said, uh, he said uh, Malcolm Campbell came to me and said, looks like the Ministry Air Ministry are going to loan me a, 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 a Rolls-Royce R-type engine. Now the Rolls-Royce R-type engine was on on the secret list, big time. It was another engine developed for the uh, 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 Schneider Trophy racing aircraft. Um, the I think Rolls-Royce only made about eight or nine or ten of them. Not not very many. Uh, it was strictly for racing. And uh, he uh, and and he said, "I'd like you to sort of put that into my my car." And, uh, Campbell had a little bit of a fetish, which was very f- frustrating to uh, uh, to Railton, which was that he he liked keeping part of the previous car, so he could keep on calling it the bluebird he, he just he didn 't like the idea that anything would be discarded or if it had to be discarded, it had to be, but he liked, he liked the continuity just uh, it was just the kind of thing that he had about about the car. And, uh, and Railton, of course, would have preferred a more thoroughgoing approach, but he said, "Okay, fine. I'll see what I can do." And here they are in the garage at T and T, running up the engine in the car, and that's, of course, Campbell and Railton, uh, and, and uh, uh, with uh, basically the same car but with the Rolls-Royce engine installed, and this. Produced a very aggressive-looking streamliner, uh, uh, very very uh, potent-looking automobile of which uh, Campbell was uh, justly proud. In a 1933, they went 272.1 miles an hour at Daytona with this car. Um, so that that was not bad, but but I think they they felt that. Uh, that uh, considering the power of this uh, engine, uh, which was on the order of 2,000 horsepower, uh, they should have gone faster. And that was kind of their feeling. So they thought they, they rebuilt the car. Um, this is during the rebuilding process. Again, um, uh, Railton, I think over here, yeah. Again, with this sort of, I'm not, I'm not really here. Uh, Campbell and then uh, uh, Ken Taylor. And you'll see that there are twin rear wheels. So that's one way to get more power onto the road, onto the sand, as it happens, uh, doubling the traction. Um, he, he lengthened the chassis, had a new frame made, uh, and and also planned to have a, a uh, air brake, which was operated by this big vacuum cylinder back here. Um, and that was the. It finally, finally, Railton managed to get rid of the original steering, which dated back to Bluebird One, and put in a different steering system, much simpler, and so forth. Um, and uh, this is the 1935 car. A, a a pretty impressive automobile, really. This 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 did uh, get people's attention. Campbell, uh, sorry, um, Railton was pretty sure that the way they did this Bluebird was just to really uh, put, put clay in the, in the wind tunnel model over the, over the cylinder heads of this v, V12. And they hadn't really thought the aerodynamics through. And he felt that this was causing a lot of turbulence around the, the upper part of the car. So that's why they went to the quite new body in which these these uh, engine covers are really beautifully fared in, and and so forth. And the here was a front uh, air intake for cooling, which was designed to have a shutter, so that when you hit the measured mile or were approaching the measured mile, you could shut that, and that would. Uh, uh, obviously uh, reduce drag, the theory being that you could certainly get through the mile, which takes you, I don't know, eight seconds or whatever it takes, and then open it again and uh, without uh, unduly cooking the engine. Um, not to spoil my story, but I will, th- I, this picture uh, points out something that uh, becomes a problem later. That's the position of this uh, air inlet scoop that's the air inlet to the engine now if we go back here we see that that air inlet is right there right in the front very aggressively placed where it can get a lot of air Um, in this design it's uh, at the exhaust of the air from the radiator this is where the radiator air comes out this slot and hot air comes out and back. And this is probably pretty turbulent around here. And this turns out to be a big mistake. And the result is that they go to um, Daytona in 1935, and they go 276.8 miles an hour. And that's what? About you know uh, less than four miles an hour faster than they did with the previous setup. Which and, and they really thought, wow, we're we're something's wrong here. Um, this is the car as it ran at Daytona. You can see the rear uh, uh, air brakes in, in place. A fantastic car, but that was a fault. That was a fault because the, the uh, Maryland the sorry the the uh, R type wanted a, a clear, clean, cold air air, in, air inlet under pressure. When, he, when they rectified that and took it to Bonneville later in 1935, it, it did an average of 301.1 miles per hour. So job done, really. That, that was Campbell's personal goal. That's the, that's the speed he wanted to reach in his land speed career. And uh, he did, thanks to uh, a lot of work by TNT and, uh, and uh, Railton. Um, just uh, uh, speaking of Campbell, I just have to show you this uh, quite fabulous car. I just love this picture. He's uh, herding it around, uh, around the Brooklyns, one of the Brooklyns' road courses. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of two V12 uh, four-liter Sunbeams that uh, Campbell bought um, uh, from Sunbeam. Um, heavily modified by T and to, to uh, Railton's designs, front axle brakes, uh, frame. Uh, they basically built a new car around the engines. Um, and at that time, of course, twin rear wheels were coming, becoming the real deal for uh, hill climbing and for uh, tight Brooklyn's courses. And these cars also had um, pre-selector transmissions. And this was considered the first time that a pre-selector was used in uh, a, uh, a, a racing car. Uh, of course, the, the pre-selector is, is a, essentially a, a, a planetary gear transmission, uh, which you uh, engage by using what looks like a clutch pedal. You just select the next ratio when you want it. You push the clutch pedal. Ish. It's not a clutch pedal. It's a gear engaging device, and that puts you in the next gear. And, and Campbell really became sold on the merits of that, and a lot of other people did too. But Railton was the first to put this into uh, uh, use. Uh, another uh, customer, important customer was um, uh, Whitney Strait, an American who had come over, and by his unbelievable driving skill. Uh, attracted the attention of everybody at Brooklands. He bought, he bought uh, Tim Birkin's Maserati and lapped the mountain course faster than Birkin, which was considered un- impossible. Nobody could be faster than Birkin, but he was. Uh, and uh, for 1934, he uh, put together a team of uh, Maseratis for the new Grand Prix season, set up a company of which Railton was a director. Uh, to race them and uh, This is one of the one of the Maseratis with a special cowl also with uh, preselector transmissions a number of other modifications a special uh, supercharger drive uh, and so forth that uh, the, These cars ultimately won a lot of races, but not uh, they weren't successful in Formula One or which was which it was in those days 1934 also was the introduction of the Mercedes-Benz and, and Auto Union Grand Prix cars, and a, a reworked Maserati wasn't quite going to get the job done. But Whitney Strait had a great time while, while it lasted. And uh, he retired and became head of uh, British uh, Airways, as it, it wasn't called that then. But <laughs> I can't remember all the different names it's had. But it, uh, So he, he, he did well, and he well warmly remembered uh, Railton. Um, Now, we have another application for a uh, Napier Lion. The Napier Lion was also originally made as as an unsupercharged engine, developing around 530 horsepower. And uh, John Cobb, excuse me, on the right, he loved big cars. John Cobb came to Brooklands, more or less untutored, bought the biggest, fastest cars he could find, and drove the pants off them, won races in spite of the handicap system at Brooklands. Um, he went up through. He had a V12 uh, Delage that had broken the land speed record. He raced that at Brooklands. He, he, he wanted, he loved big cars, and he knew how to drive them. He, and as Railton said, he. He he knew how to put his foot to the floor with these cars. (laughs) Not everybody knew how to do that. Um, And he came to Railton in 1933 and said, I would like a car that I can use for record breaking and also use for racing at Brooklands. Uh, Okay, (laughs) And and, uh, and here for a change was a chance to, to design a car from scratch. Um, and we see uh, uh, Cobb with uh, with uh, Ken Taylor here, and the the system of the uh, the W12 uh, uh, Napier, and up everything is special, uh, straight front axle, underslung uh, frame at the front. Um, uh, special arrangements of the dampers, um, uh, very, very very robust but light uh, construction. Uh, at the rear, an un- extremely unusual arrangement of uh, as you could see in the car today, you may have looked at it and thought, "Well, what the heck is all that?" There's a, there, there are two um, semi-elliptic springs on each side, one above and one below the axle. And uh, they, in effect, the rear parts act like twin trailing arms guiding the axle. Um, And uh, the way that they're mounted with these trunnions here and so forth means that the whole rest of the rear of the frame doesn't have to do anything. There's, There's no work being done there except holding up the fuel tank. And that's wonderful because this, is, this, this was a feature that he, he installed in order to give the sp- suspension the flexibility that it needed to do uh, both the jobs that uh, Cobb wanted, both to race fast at Brooklyn's, which has its fair share of bumps, and to be good for record breaking wherever it would go. So this, is, this was a completely unique uh, rear suspension concept. Um, big, big Borgenbeck clutch. Uh, pre- no, not a pre-selector. He used for this a, a, a straightforward three-speed uh, gearbox. Um, rear axle had its own sump. Uh, this, is, this is probably the original sump. They made it quite a lot larger. After the early ones runs of the car, the axle got a bit warm. Um, the rollout uh, of the car, uh, here, here Railton is in a little more prominent position. He's, uh, he's right there with Cobb. Here's Ken Taylor. Here's uh, PT. Uh, no, here's Ken Thompson, sorry, and Ken Taylor over here, and some of the crew at uh, t and uh, And I just hope one day the car has wheels like that. It's still running with wheels like it had after the war. Uh, just a little word to the wise here. It would be really wonderful to see the car on the wheels that it actually used in the uh, pre-war uh, years. Here you get another look at this uh, very uh, complex uh, but clever suspension system. The the uh, Cobb car became at Brooklyn's, of course. Um, the this is the Napier rail. And it became it became. Uh, The legend—it set uh, the 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 lap record for the circuit at 143.44 miles an hour in 1935, and and that's you know a long time back. Uh, There were there were what three more years of four more years of racing, or three and a half anyway, and uh, and nobody beat it. It it wasn't beaten. Uh, That's pretty remarkable. A lot of people tried, uh, but they didn't succeed. It went to, um, it went well. It went to uh, at the time was considered in France. The big bank track at Mollery was considered better than Brooklyn's. It was, it was a tad newer. It was made in the early 1920s, um, and uh, it was thought to be the better place to go uh, record breaking, and that uh, was true up to a point and up to a point when the car spun out of control and and went into the infield, and and the French had to get a tank out to to haul it out of the ditch that it ended up in. Uh, Luckily, nobody was hurt on this occasion, but uh, it did show the limitations of of the Mallory uh, circuit. So in 1935, after much discussion, um, Ab Jenkins in Utah had urged the use of the Bonneville salt flats. And he put on a campaign to uh, Campbell to, uh, and to Railton, because he knew that Railton had a lot to do with what would happen with these record cars. And he finally sold Railton on the idea that, uh, that they ought to try going to uh, Bonneville which they did in the late summer of 1935. And here's the Cobb entourage with the Napier Railton uh, and and a Ford in the foreground as as they were at uh, Bonneville uh, that year. They were the first Europeans to go to Bonneville to set records, and they set records. This car performed as designed and went there and set records and uh and uh, and uh, came back um it it and i mentioned campbell going to bonneville in 1935 he went after after cobb so cobb showed the way uh, in spite of that when campbell showed up there he 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 got out on the salt, and he said, no way, I can drive on this, it's terrible, I can't, why did you send me out here anyway? But (laughs) that was his nature, and he eventually figured out that it was a pretty good surface, it really was an amazing surface, actually. Um, 1936, uh, the car came back, Um, here there are a few features that are a little different, there's a. Kind of, you know, the, the exhaust pipe here is, is mon- manifolded so that it's not, you know, flames aren't coming out in front of the driver at night to dis- dis- disturb him. We have very um, large section tires on front versus the ones on the back. My, this is the Ludwigson theory is that that is to reduce understeer, make it easier to keep the car on the 10 mile circle that they used for record breaking. The ultimate um, uh, here's here's another tweak that uh, was introduced uh, for the 1930, uh, I think 1936 season at uh, Bonneville um, was a starter. This is a car starter. It's a starter motor with a bevel drive to this engageable wheel that can you know operate against the rear wheel to start the car because. The problem was that if the engine stalled somewhere on the 10-mile circle that was pretty far away, you'd have a lot of trouble getting the car going again. Uh, so uh, 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 Railton dreamed this up. And the boys at TNT uh, designed and made it, and you know, fabricated it and installed it. The ultimate uh, record set included Uh, 167.7 miles an hour for one hour, and uh, 150.16 miles per hour for 24 hours. Those were the top records that the car set. Pretty good going. And uh, they were eventually, in the latter part of the 30s, beaten by um, uh, George Easton with with a much more advanced car. Uh, and by um, Ab Jenkins, with a, with, he, he built a new car with an aero engine and so on, and he went faster. But uh, uh, when, when Cobb and the Napier Railton were running, they were, they were uh, very fit uh, competitors. Um, another task came to TNT. Uh, Raymond Mays had convinced Humphrey Cook to fund a um, building of a team of uh, single-seater racing cars. These were the first purpose-built British road racing automobiles. Uh, The ERAs, which were launched in, uh, gosh, 1934, and, and so they started to work on it in '33. and uh, t- Railton and t and got the assignment of designing and building the chassis uh, complete of these cars. They built the engines at uh, uh, Bourne, the, the ERA headquarters. They were based on a Riley engine. Uh, they were made in 1.1, 1.5, 1.2 liter sizes. Uh, but the, the suspension was quite straightforward. It was, a, it was a, another one of these jobs, as Railton said, that, that people didn't want too much money spending on. Uh, so he didn't try anything too uh, fancy. He, he kind of went along the sort of Alfa Romeo lines of the time, except he, he, he hung the leaf springs rather differently, did some different things with the, uh, the drive shaft arrangements, and used the preselector transmission again. Uh, as, uh, as a hallmark of uh, the designs he was uh, using. And uh, uh, here's, here's Raymond Mays trying one out at Brooklyn's, testing one of the cars. And, uh, and during the 30s, the one-and-a-half-liter class, the class, was very popular in Europe. There were races all over the continent for Maseratis, Bugattis, um, and, uh, uh, and ERAs, and, and the, uh, the ERA became a, a popular car, if you can call that, you know, a racing car popular. They made a, a decent number of them, and they were racing uh, every weekend all over the continent, uh, very, very successfully, through 36, 37, um, by 38, the Maseratis and Alfa Romeos were catching up with them. And they weren't as successful, but they gave a lot of people a lot of very very good racing. And they raced. They raced after the war. They competed in the first Grand Prix races of the uh, 1940s and early 1950s as well. So the ERA became a, a kind of a legendary. Uh, success story for British racing and this picture just meant to show that there were quite a lot of them on the grid sometimes Uh, and and they were pretty successful. Um, A friend of Railton's was a fellow named Noel Macklin. Macklin was the man behind the Invicta car and in the early 1930s, 1933 thereabouts, 32 the demand for the Invicta was folding, folding up; it was fading away. People were not keen on buying these expensive, uh, big cars, um, and uh, the, the guys at um, at uh, uh, Macklin's uh, residence and the workshops behind it were looking around for something else to do, and they discovered the Hudson Terraplane, which was a remarkably lively American uh, six-cylinder car initially, then an eight-cylinder car made by the yeah, Hudson Company. And uh, they thought, hmm, what, maybe we could make something out of this Terraplane that would be attractive and interesting for the, U- the UK market. And they came up with the idea of the Railton car. And this is quite a nice sketch by Max Miller, showing the basic idea of the original Um, Railton, which they called it, he said, Macklin said, do you mind if we name this car after you? And he said, no, no, but he said privately, he said, I hope this isn't gonna do do too much to what I consider to be my reputation, (laughs) one way or the other. All in all, the Railton car enhanced his reputation. Luckily, through the 30s, the Railton was a very, very valid and a very exciting motor car. Uh, just a little uh, tweak here, a uh, te- technical tweak. The, one of the features of the, um, uh, the uh, uh, Terraplane chassis was its, this, this sheet metal plate, steel plate, that was, was attached to the frame and to the bottom of the body. So it gave a very robust uh, attachment of the two without adding a great deal of weight. So the car was very well thought out. Um, And uh, it it had, I won't call it a great competition career, but it did compete in some events. And Railton took it uh, with his friend and colleague, Sammy San Pietro, on outings uh, to test the car for use in long-distance rallies, like the Alpine Rally. And uh, here he's uh, in Italy, uh, one of the Uh, one of the passes during this uh, adventure. Um, The Railton was in its most sporting form, light sports tourer form. It accelerated from 0 to 60 in uh, 8.5 seconds, which for the time was phenomenal. People just couldn't believe the performance of these Railtons. Uh, The secret was that, that at the time when it was launched, they put a lot of effort into keeping it light. They made it as light as possible. And this, this, was, this drove their coach builders crazy. But they did succeed in getting them to build light cars. And the combination of a, a big uh, American engine and a light car was amazing acceleration. And the one that really uh, carried the mail was the light sports tourer, of which this is perhaps the most, uh, most uh, familiar photograph. This is the editor of AutoCar, Mr. Linfield, with his pipe firmly clenched between his <laughs> teeth at the top of the, uh, the test hill here at Brooklyn's. No car had come up the test hill with anything like the robustness of the light sports tourer. Uh, Railton only built two of these, if I'm correct, uh, from the factory. But uh, there are quite a few more now, because this is quite an easy thing to make if you take all the... Gubbins off of a off of a railton frame. Uh, the Railton car did win a good reputation for uh, Reed and some uh, earnings because obviously he did he did have a license arrangement with uh, with uh, uh, Macklin and and he was um, he, he 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 was interested in what was happening with the car. He was not he was not he didn't contribute greatly to the engineering, but he was involved and he was very. Uh, he was interested in what, what, what Macklin's policy was on, on the types of car to build and so forth, so they had a lively uh, uh, relationship in that respect. But just an idea of other Railton's were more elegant and, and they progressively got heavier as customers wanted more luxurious bodies and so on, so in the, during the 30s the performance was said to uh, suffer somewhat, but still pretty, pretty remarkably good. Uh, and they were impressive cars, as we saw several of them here today, thank goodness. Um, the MG people. Um, uh, MG people were, um, having, during the 1930s, big battles with Austin. I mean, who would be the first to 100 miles an hour with a 750 cc car and, and uh, battles like that. You know, they were, they were, and George Easton was on the, uh, on the uh, Austin side and then he moved over to MG, worked with them. There was a terrific competition between the two uh, companies. And so um, MG, then, this was was a racing sporting tradition that really helped sales of the MG car. Uh, MG was sold in around 1937 or 8 to Nuffield Group. And in in spite of that, uh, Goldie Gardner, who had raced MGs and set Records at, uh, at the, at, at, in Germany with MG, conventional MGs, tarted up a bit, streamlined somewhat, uh, was keen to make a, a faster car. And, and he convinced Lord Nuffield that, that this would be worth spending some money on, even though MG wasn't in road racing anymore. He said he, he, thought, he thought making some kind of a competition car uh, for, for record breaking would be a good idea. And so he funded the building of such a car, which was the EX-135. Um, here we have uh, Railton, a Goldie Gardner, very tall, difficult to get into a small car, uh, Lord Nuffield, and why am I not thinking of his name, uh, head of MG at the time? Um, it'll come to me anyway uh he he was kind of he was still active at m g but um, it was he was the, he it was he was fading out a little bit as as i am apparently um, but the the concept of this car they they asked Railton, they said, look, we want to make a faster car a fast car and uh and so he uh, he he conceived the car the shape the the height or the lack of height which was which was radical for the day no no cars were any were as low as this no competition cars of any kind or uh, shaped as as elegantly and uh, they said don't you want to take that into the wind tunnel and he said no he said i think i've fussed around with these cars enough now i know pretty much how it should be shaped and uh, so he uh, gave MG a, a, a big uh, uh, you know, mock up with uh, the, the various stations uh, indicated by bulkheads and so on, and they made the body. And they fitted it onto a chassis that they had made, something they made previously, which was a very straightforward K3, racing K3 frame, but with the drive shaft located ang- in, ang- in an angle, engine, gearbox, and uh, axle at an angle across the car so the driver could sit very low. And as you could see, uh, Goldie Gardner was uh, a pretty tall chap. And to fold him into this car was no small achievement. Uh, the, the rear axle housing is right over against the, re- the rear left, left rear hub. Uh, very straightforward uh, suspension, nothing special. And they, they based their initial efforts on engines based on a six-cylinder overhead cam Wolseley uh, unit with a uh, supercharger, um, very uh, a a quadratic steering wheel, to because there's no room for a full steering wheel in this car, and, and or or need for one really. And if you want to see a gorgeous uh, record breaker, I think this will do the job. This is the, uh, the EX-135, uh, um, and uh, it was first shown, the first picture was its launch at, uh, that was in July of 1938. Um, Gardner here is here on the um, special road built in Germany for record breaking. This was a stretch of Audubon that was paved across completely from one side to the other. When they weren't using it for record breaking, they put, you know, like stanchions and flags and things in the middle of the road so the people wouldn't <laughs> be driving willy nilly all over the place. But it was, it was a, a completely um, uh, paved road, as you can see here. Uh, a phenomenal stretch of road, which was about 15 miles long including a couple of uh, gently curved sections at the ends. In uh, May of 1939, um, with a 1.1 liter engine, uh, he was timed there at 203.5 miles per hour. For the kilometer, 203.2 miles per hour for the uh, mile. No, Yeah, for the mile. Um, it, it was a phenomenal accomplishment. The first time they ran the car was was at a different venue in Germany. Uh, the year before, late the year before, uh, yeah, late the year before, and uh, and uh, uh, Gardner came to the end of the uh, end of the end of the, the, his first run. And he asked one of the mechanics to come over, and he said, uh, "He said, Greg, what gear am I in? What gear am I in? He he, it went so fast that he thought it must. He, and he saw on the tack, the, the figure, you know, it was so high. He thought he was in third gear. He he hadn't sh- He thought maybe he forgot to shift into high. The car was so the, the wind." The air did not exist for this car. There was no air (laughs) in the world that could slow it down. Uh, It had a fantastic career, this car. It set records. At one time, it held all of the 10 classes. It held records in five of them, Um, the five smallest, from two liters down to 350 cc. And Gardner got it out again after the war, set more records. Um, the MG EX-135 was, uh, was perhaps, uh, I mean, it's considered by some experts as the most outstanding record breaker of uh, any time uh, at all. And these speeds that it did on, uh, at Dessau, on this road, were the fastest that it had ever accomplished. And when Gardner was no longer well, um, MG, um, MG retired the car. They said, we're not going to let anybody else drive this car. <laughs> this is Gardner's achievement and we don't want it to, we want, we want it to end, end its career along with his. Well, this was, uh, this was something very, very, very special. A car that Railton deserves a lot of credit for. No one else could have conceived this, uh, this amazing vehicle. Speaking of amazing vehicles, we have the uh, Railton Special. Um, uh, this this good rear view of the shape. He experimented with five different shapes in the wind tunnel for a new record breaker of the world speed record for John Cobb. John had raised his, uh, his ambitions. He wanted to go after the world speed record. And uh, the, the, the challenge was to, well, uh, the, the, the challenge was to use two supercharged Napier Lion engines, because that's what Cobb had. He had two supercharged Lion engines. So he didn't have a lot of Rolls-Royce engines lying around and so on, but he did have uh, two engines that had been used in a, in a racing hydroplane before. and. Uh, They would have to suffice for the car. I can just go ahead to show you the structure of the car in which the the, uh, engines are placed in a sort of diagonal position. Um, This being the front engine drives the rear wheels. This being the rear engine drives the front wheels. Um, they, they drove through three speed manual gearboxes, um, and, and uh, adjacent to which were drum type brakes. These were, the, these were the brakes of the car. These were all the brakes of the car. There's one, sorry, one, one here, there's one right there, and they're water cooled. Railton said, look, um, we—he he ice cooled the car, uh, opening for ice. There was, this is the original construction of the car in 1938 with the right ice tank over there. Um, he said, we will put ice in here. Obviously, the water is being circulated around the ice and so on. Uh, but after we've run through the mile, uh, we don't have any need for this water. So we'll use it to cool the brakes. So the system automatically, when when uh, Cobb applied the brakes, uh, delivered uh, water to all all inside and outside of the uh, external contracting brake drum uh, of the uh, of the, right on the drive shaft of the car. At, at the at the first series, they did have an air brake here, but they didn't really use it. It turned out not to be necessary. Um, remarkably. This car weighed only what have I got here? weighed only 7600 pounds. Now that's not a lot when you consider those engines probably weigh hundred 1,700 pounds each or something like that. I haven't, I should have looked that up, but I haven't. but they uh, to make a car that light, well one of the ways he did it was the, the frame. The frame is a, is a, is a is a backbone frame, which runs between the engines in an S-shaped pattern, back to the uh, rear wheels, which are suspended by uh, uh, two upper uh, upper radius rods and a lower triangle, and the front wheels, which are suspended by um, uh, uh, up and lower, upper and lower wishbones, and I. I put a lot of effort into trying to understand this car. Uh, the uh, it's never the details of this car have never been properly explained until now. I, I can say that uh, with the help of an engineer friend of mine, we we figured out everything about the the the, the, the Railton Special, and it's it's uh, it was very frustrating at times trying to get straight exactly what they did. And the changes that they made between 1938 and 39, very significant changes in the suspension. Uh, 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 they, they, f- fantastic car. I was just determined to figure out everything. And there's only one thing I don't quite understand, but uh, which I will mention. Um, uh, here's where Cobb is sitting. Um, the, uh, there was no place else to put him. <laughs> there's no no room in the car for a cockpit anywhere else, so they 're then right at the front and uh, the attitude from Cobb would be if you say that 's where it should be reed that 's where we 'll put it and uh, that was his he he had total confidence in what Railton would uh, do with with the design of this car and here of course is Reed Railton chaps working on the body in the background and these are uh, slave wheels. They were not the wheels used in the record runs. Um, yep. Uh, okay. Uh, fantastic. And just uh, speaking of the S-shaped frame, this is a look down the in, inside of the S-shaped frame. Um, uh, as one of the in, uh, the draftsmen said, he said there was considerable excitement in the office when. The chaps came in, bring, carrying this frame. <laughs> they, of course, they, they, didn't all know what all the pieces were that were fitting together in this car. But when two mechanics came into the workshop, bringing this frame in, they, they really had a, a, a bit of a field day, thinking, "What on earth is this all about?" And you know, there are little details like tension rods in here, supporting out outer, uh, outer uh, uh, bearers for the body and so on. Uh, some of these holes are, are lightning holes, and some of them are holes for the exhaust, inboard exhaust pipes of the Lion engines. That had to go somewhere. And it went down through the, through the, uh, through the frame. Oh, and, and the front suspension is a thing of absolute beauty. Uh, fantastic uh, ball-type joints uh, operating uh, to- upper and lower Wishbones, uh, U-joint uh, there on the inside. Um, when when the uh, press came in to see this car in in, in this kind of shape, uh, you know, before it went on its first run, they absolutely lost their cool totally. One of them said, "This is a 21st century car. This is not. It's 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 so ingenious, so brilliant." Um, and here's the second season. Uh, Reed installed a uh, a, a, tac- a tachograph here, which uh, was modified, of course, to to uh, to to show speeds up to 400 miles an hour instead of up to 40 miles an hour as a truck would use it or whatever. Uh, so he had that to have a better record of uh, of what uh, speed they were actually making through the uh, through the mile, and in fact that. There is a, a, a picture in the uh, book of one of the tachygraph disks, so you can see what the pattern was. For Oh, and here's a, here's a, here's a good picture of the, uh, the, the brake that I told you about, uh, three-speed transmission, uh, and these big lay-rub joints. And here's the outer band brake operated by hydraulic cylinder here, and these are the water Delivery pipes to the uh, to the exterior of the brake, and there are other pipes to the interior of the brake. So all the water is total loss; all the water just runs out and through the brakes and cools them off. And uh, it it stopped like a like a dream. Uh, here's the gang at TNT as the car is completed for the first time. This this was used a little bit, but not much. This funny. Open top um, canopy. Uh, Reed is here with uh, again. He's looking off in the distance. You know, if I if I don't look at the camera, they won't notice me. You know, kind of thing. Um, Who else? Uh, 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 Thompson. Uh, I think that's uh, Taylor back there. He's kind of hiding. Anyway, this is their rollout of the car. And just a look, kind of overview of the car with uh, Taylor and Reed. Um, uh, the, the obviously the whole body was lifted off to have access for service. Uh, there was no other way to do it. You couldn't have, you know, patches, catches, and, and, and hatches and things in, 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 in that uh, structure. Um, You can see here's one of the bulkheads behind Cobb. That was supposed to keep some of the engine noise from driving him nuts. Uh, 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 Yeah, the front uh, cockpit with uh, brake controls and so forth. This was in 1939 with with Gilmore Lion was sponsoring the effort. And with the Napier Lion, that was a very nice combination. Now here's Railton in the cockpit, um, just checking the magneto switches uh, and uh, seeing what's, what's what. Another, another view of him as they were taking the car back in. This is, again, 1939 with the uh, slave wheels on that they used when they were just moving the car around. Um, and here's a picture that you won't see anywhere else. It's not the best picture, but it shows uh, one I've never seen before that's showing Cobb. The first time he drove the car at Bonneville, he drove it without the body, of course. <laughs> and you want to see that everything's working properly, and you know. And, and he took it up to about 250 miles an hour in this condition. And uh, he, 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 as you can imagine, this car had a better power to weight ratio than any Grand Prix car of the period, uh, and, and most Grand Prix cars up to, uh, up, up, up to the, you know, the, the turbo car era in, in after the war. It had a phenomenal uh, power to weight ratio. So the ability, its ability to accelerate up to speed to get through the mile quickly was fantastic. But that's the way it was first tested by uh, Cobb. And here's the routine for the uh, uh, mounting and demounting of the body. Railton's up, guiding it down a little bit forward, a little bit back, please. And the, the, uh, the uh, push car, the, the Dodge truck that was loaned by some people that uh, um, uh, Railton knew in Detroit, uh, where his contacts were extremely good. Um, and these color pictures are all thanks to my friend John Dugdale. John went there in 1939 with, with, uh, to, uh, as a representative of AutoCar. And boy, did he take color film with him. Fantastic. And I held these in my personal library for quite some time. They're now uh, in the uh, Revs Institute files. But gee, I kept copies, didn't I? <laughs> Um, and, that's, that's, and that gives us this very nice picture, of, for example, of uh, Railton and uh, Cobb in 1939. And just a shot of the car taken from the, from the truck as it went away. The, the, uh, the first time they ran the car, and it may have been, it may have been when, it, uh, when it was still without the body, uh, there's a lot of smoke from when, when you just accelerate away from the uh, the start with these big uh, aero engines. They, give, make, they make considerable smoke. It doesn't show up too much here. But uh, 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 Dugdale was riding in the, on the truck uh, behind, and uh, they, it went off, and there was this big smoke bubble in front, and it was blocked out his view. And when it cleared, there was nothing in front of the car, with the truck, nothing in front of the truck. It had gone over the horizon. By the time the uh, smoke cleared, it was a a peculiar sensation, to say the least. Um, Another view of the uh, uh, car, of course, it's four-wheel drive. I probably should have mentioned it at the start, but I think that's pretty clear. And in order to have only four wheels, Cobb had to get the weight down and, and, and Cobb and Railton had to get the weight down so this was according to Dunlop. Dunlop had a rule of how much weight you could put on each one of these tires. Um, George Easton had a car with two Rolls-Royce engines in it and to handle its weight he had to have eight wheels so he had four in front and a kind of tandem arrangement and then and then uh, four and across in the back. And there, that's in the book. There's a, there's a, an appendix about the uh, the uh, his uh, his car his book his car. The uh, Napier special. Well, in 1936, is that right? Yeah. No, 1938. It did just over 350 miles an hour at Bonneville, and that was a record until uh, Easton just topped it. I think he went 355, something like that. Um, They came back in 1939. They went 369 miles an hour. And then they returned in 1947 when the average speed was 394.196 miles per hour with a one-way run of 403 miles an hour um they, which which for Cobb, he was pretty happy with that he wouldn't have minded around four hundred, but they it was getting kind of late in the season, and the salt wasn't really very good and so uh they they didn't make another effort in nineteen forty seven uh but what a what a what a car and here they're getting uh and Railton's getting a bit of you know congratulation he's accepting it you know, calmly, after the 1939 uh, run. Uh, And Cobb there as well, and Earl Gilmore of Gilmore Oil, and various uh, nabobs. Now, for a complete change of scene, Campbell decided, okay, I've done 300 in my... uh, car, and Now I want to go for the water speed record, and he called. Uh, he called Railton in, and uh, he said, "Okay, I think I have some ideas about this, and I'd like to get um, I'd like to get um, uh, another designer, Fred Cooper, in. I want to get Fred Cooper to to get me be dealing with some of the underbody designs. Uh, the the it was designed as a." Uh, a uh, a single step planing boat, one step in the front, going across, and a planing boat. And and so it was supposed to ride on this step and the the rear transom, basically. And Cooper was a very knowledgeable guy who came up with this design. The the idea was to, obviously, this was was using one of Campbell's Rolls-Royce engines, one of his R-type engines, driving forward to a gearbox and then back all the way so that the angle of the propeller could be, could be correct. And yet the boat as a whole would not be too big. And uh, uh, that's the K3 Bluebird, which uh, set a record at, uh, 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 in, in Italy in 1938, 130.86 miles per hour, new water speed record. Now that beat the Americans who had been setting water speed records f- for Young's, um, and uh, very satisfactorily. but it was very clear that this, that was this boat's limit. Um, Campbell um, he, he said it felt you know like it was kind of riding on two points, one at the front, one at the rear, and, and he, he didn't the handling was good, good enough for 130, but he knew that was the limit of the boat. And uh, Railton, of course, by, by late, uh, the late 1930s was spending more time in America. And he was finding out about what the uh, American hydroplane people were doing. And he, uh, he discovered that they were using a new kind of three-point riding uh, hy- hydroplane uh, which had sponsons at two sides, was running on these co- sort of corners and then running on the, t- on the uh, transom at the back. And he went to see the guys who kind of and, and developed and patented this idea in New Jersey. And uh, he said, okay, the, they didn't want to work with him as such, but they didn't seem to mind him using the concept, which he did. He brought that back, and uh, and uh, this boat, K-4, was made we're using the same uh, drivetrain, engine in the back, driving forward, and then back, same gearbox, and so on. Um, and right out of the box, literally, in 1939, this uh, K-4 went 141.34 miles an hour, upping the record substantially and with no trouble. <laughs> and uh, it was, it was a terrific achievement, and that record stood for a long, long time, well into the post-war era. Now, Raylan was in America in 1939 because his friend, Neil, Noel, Noel, Markland, Noel Macklin, had a, had a better idea. He, he said, I know we're going to need good uh, boats to chase submarines in the, in the coming war. And I have a clever idea for using a kind of mass production to produce such boats. And I think I know the architects who can design them. And I think I know the engineer who can go to, uh, around the world and find the best engines for uh, such boats. And uh, that, needless to say, was Reed Railton, who was uh, put on the board of uh, his new Fairmile um, Marine Corporation. And uh, just just a, a quick look at a Fairmile Type C. This is this is fairly well along in, in the development of the Fairmile range uh, A, B, and C. This is one of the bigger later boats, uh, which had three uh, Hall Scott engines. Uh, Railton came up with he was he, he was convinced that uh, Hall Scott, which had a factory in Berkeley, California. Were the people to go with? They had the designs, they had the capacity to produce, and um, and and a reputation that was quite good. And they were keen to 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 work with uh, um, Macklin, and and Macklin was able to negotiate with Railton's help a, an exclusive contract with Hall Scott. So there was a tremendous competition for engines for these light boats at the time. Uh, people were trying to figure out where they could get engines for them. So, by by uh, uh, tying up Paul Scott uh, as, as a source for uh, the Fairmile boat, boats, he, 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 Railton did a terrific job. And uh, the uh, Fairmile people introduced a supercharged version of their engine um, using a, a supercharger from a, a, a McCulloch company in Wisconsin. And I'm, I, I, I can't give you a chapter and verse, but I'm sure that they used some of Rilton's know-how in developing this, uh, this engine. And that, that, was, that was the ultimate version of the uh, uh, Hall-Scott def- Hall, 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 Hall Defender engine. Uh, when, with this more powerful engine, um, Hall-Scott needed a better uh, 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 reversing gear. So Railton created a completely new reversing gear, which was manufactured in California for use with these high-performance, supercharged V12s in these various boats. And this is just a quick cross-section of this, which which, um, worked in such a manner that when it it got into forward drive, high gear, it locked up. There was no chance of slipping or, or breaking things, which was an advantage, obviously. Um, the, uh, uh, meanwhile, it's quite a long story, but um, how shall I put it? OK. Um, uh, after the war, Malcolm Campbell tried to put a jet engine in his pre-war K-4 boat. This was a flop. And um, then he died, and uh, Donald Campbell obtained the boat he he got the engines he had to part with the bluebird land speed record car in order to get the engines etc um, and he he tried he tried to put the boat back the way it was when Campbell had set the record in it and but this did not progress it didn't work well by that time uh, in the states uh, Railton had discovered that the latest high-speed boats were, used, were prop riding. And they were, at the back, they were not riding on the transom. They were riding on the bottom half of the propeller in these, these boats. And the, the, the propeller was just, just partly in the water. But they, and they were going vastly faster. And uh, so Donald Campbell rebuilt his boat as a prop rider. And in order to achieve this, the engine had to be farther forward. The center of gravity of the boat had to be much farther forward. Otherwise, you, that's what allowed the rear to come up. The weight wasn't so concentrated at the rear, and so on. So he, uh, he built it as a prop rider. And uh, he hit, one of his outings with it was to an event in Italy, which gave a prize, the Altransa Cup, for the fastest two laps during a four lap race. And although they had trouble getting away, and so they were not winning the race overall, they easily won the old transit Cup. And this is when, um, this is basically when uh, uh, Donald Campbell, uh, Railton uh, and uh, his mechanic, uh, Reilton, uh, sorry, Campbell's mechanic, uh, L- uh, Leo Villa. And this is when Leo Villa, realized that Donald Campbell had what it takes when you're driving a fast um, marine boat. He he really was impressed by what Campbell did, driving that in a race circuit. The final chapter begins at a press conference in New York in, uh, let's see, press conference July 1952. Uh, Working together across the Atlantic, Railton left, and Peter Duquesne of Vospers on the right had come up with a concept for a a water speed record breaking boat for John Cobb in the middle. Um, They they did so with a grueling series of tests of different kinds of shapes and versions of of the boat. But the basic concept, which was Railton's, was that you would ride on one sponson at the front and two at the rear. The idea being that doing it that way, the there was much less likely to be a lot of lift at the front of the boat because it presented less area to the air. And you had these stabilizing sponsons at the rear. And so it wouldn't be subject to Lift uh, at the front, which is a bugbear, obviously, of any uh, boat skating along the surface of the water. So this is just one of, I, I, I would say, dozens of models that they made and tested in a in a ton- towing tank in uh, in, the, in the south of England. And the ultimate layout that they came up with was uh, exactly that. A uh, uh, an arrangement in which the big, big jet engine, they, the engine they were using was a de Havilland, and it was a, a centrifugal supercharger engine, so it was quite bulky, uh, forcing a, a quite high back end of the boat. Uh, it rode on one ski or one skid or one, one planing surface here, and, and one at the end of each uh, sponson. Uh, on the side, that, that was the concept. And, of course, the air inlets for the jet engine and so forth. Um, and this this boat was arrived at after much difficult transatlantic collaboration between Railton and uh, uh, Peter Duquesne at Vospers, who built the boat. A cross-section of it gives an idea of the construction, which was basically wood. Um, at the time, people thought, oh, it's polished aluminum. It looks like an aluminum boat. There was some aluminum in it at, at Railton's insistence. Uh, there are aluminum in these, these beams uh, holding the sponsons. There's a kind of arch of aluminum here. He also wanted an arch of aluminum here to kind of you know, protect the front and brace the front of the structure more. But that got overlooked by, by uh, uh, Vospers in the course of building the boat. Um, and uh, that's the, the basic concept. Uh, the, uh, there she is, uh, under under construction, completing construction really at Vosper's. Here you can see these these arches of aluminum, and going down to the sponson attachments, and uh, just the one uh, running uh, shoe uh, just underneath here. Uh, as that's arranged. And here's uh, Cobb on um, Loch Ness with the boat. Um, it was a very powerful jet engine, 500 pounds thrust for the time. I think it was actually the most powerful jet that was available. Um, loaned him by a friend, Frank Halford. Um, and. Uh, another view of the, the rear of this machine, which one of the problems was that, if you can put it that way, that this, this jet exhaust was quite high off the water, quite high, so there was quite a, a force pushing the nose downward. The, the sloping of the uh, Sponsons was, was also intended to force the rear up and the nose down, the idea being that you know, we wanted to keep the nose down under all circumstances. On a run, which we have the sort of tape for in the, uh, in the uh, book, um, the very first serious timed run for the record, uh, uh, Cobb was timed during the flying mile at just over two, 206 miles per hour, which was first time on water over 206 miles per hour, over 200 miles an hour. Um, and uh, shortly after. Completing that flying mile, the boat seemed to explode. Uh, and you can see here, very suddenly, a gout of water is coming up through the cockpit, basically. So it's obvious that the front shoe, which they had a lot of trouble with during the trials, they had to keep bracing it and so on, had collapsed. and. Uh, as a result, the boat more or less uh, exploded. And uh, Cobb, while not visibly damaged, uh, was dead. So that, that was, that was, that was uh, terrible, of course. That was terrible. And, and we attempt in the book to give some idea about why perhaps Cobb went faster than he intended to on that run. When you look at the peak speeds he reached and so forth. So, you'll, you know, I'm interested to know if you agree with my assessment of how that all uh, came about. But it turned out that Cobb's um, executor, uh, David Wickens, I think, David, did something, was a, Bonav- was a Brooklyn's racer who, who was keen to work with Railton to build a new boat that would show that the basic concept of the the nose, uh, single nose shoe and and sponsons and so on was correct if properly executed. And this is the the test model that they built to to, uh, make a a first effort at seeing how this would work. This is the uh, front shoe here. This was the sort of planing surface to get it up to up to uh, speed, and the two sponsons is the bottom of it, of course. Uh, and this work was all done in cooperation with George Easton, who uh, uh, was a very close friend of uh, Cobb and Railton. And Railton had a lot of time for Easton; he thought he was a very thoughtful guy. He, w- he had been the he had been the uh, team leader at uh, at, at, at uh, 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 Loch Ness when Cobb crashed, so he he knew something about this problem and about the situation they were in. Anyway, um, Easton before this got tested, Easton had a, had another idea. He went back to work with MG on record breaking at Bonneville, and he I think he just he, he could see that this wasn't going to to go or. Or maybe Donald Campbell was going to get in the way, or was Campbell was showing more uh, success with his water speed record boat at the time. So for one reason or another, plus the fact that this was in Britain, Reed was in California, was not easy. So it didn't happen as it happens. Just a, a closing mention or two of his work with Hudson, he had a consulting contract with Hudson in America, starting in the, um, he did work on an ad hoc basis during the 30s. And then after the war, he had a, a, a regular contract with Hudson for consulting engineering. And in the 30s here, there he's he, Hudson are using him in an advertisement. You know, British ace engineer says, I like Hudson's engines, for example. And he did, he, he did, this is an honest <laughs> quote. He felt they, had, they, had, they were making a great engine. And here's Reed in uh, 1939, looking at the 1940 Hudson uh, with its new grill arrangement, um, which uh, they, they went after speed records with at uh, Bonneville. And this is an impressive picture, because in my view, it, although we, we know American cars are big. This makes the Railton special look small. I mean, it does kind of show that the car was not huge. <laughs> We're used to thinking of it as very large, but it wasn't that big. Here it is next to Cobb and one of the Hudson uh, racers. And they took good advantage of, of Reed's uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, standing in the world of speed uh, in, in uh, promoting Hudson cars. Um, and I'm sure. Uh, Reed was a um, very close friend of uh, of uh, Frank Spring, who was the uh, chief stylist or chief engineer of styling for Hudson. And when Hudson came out in 1948 with a new model, uh, I I'm, I'm sure that this is this is Railton influenced that Spring and Hudson who, who talked together a lot of times and met frequently in California. Uh, you know, we're, we're exchanging ideas. And this, this is about as streamlined as you could get for an American car, or frankly, for any car in 1948. And indeed it had a kind of sub-chassis arrangement, not unlike some of the Reed's designs with the rear of the frame going outside the wheels and you know, the, the basic uh, side members being very low and the being people sitting down inside the middle of the car. So I think there's a real influence in this uh, this new 1948 hudson and this is something that sally turned up in the course of our research a, a slide rule which he said bought in 1912 and used all my life uh, r-a-r um, gives a little idea of his uh, loyalty in in 1930. Six, he did buy, or or TNT bought for him a a 20 inch job with a magnifying glass just to give him a little more precision if he wanted to use it. And uh, whenever he's asked about his car, the car that that he's most proud of, he doesn't fail to mention the uh, Railton Special, which is why this picture of Reed with a model of the Railton Special uh, in his later years is uh, uh, a nice one to use to close off this rather lengthy presentation. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm acutely aware of the time at the moment and there's a few people squirming a little bit. Um, are there any questions? If we can just take a few because there are a couple of other things we want to get through. Any, any questions? Any questions? Should be on. What, uh, yep. what happened to Railton? What, 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 um, how, did, he, did he die suddenly? Did he just die of
1: old age? What happened to- No, he, he, he did not um, he did not as far as I know, he didn't contract a particular illness. He was hospitalized. I would say <clears throat> old age was, as far as I know, the, the, the guilty party. Um, he was hospitalized for some months toward the end of his life, uh, which came in 1977. So he was, what, 82, thereabouts. Uh, he'd been a lifelong smoker. You'll scarcely find a picture of him without a cigarette. Uh, we've tried. to, we, we had to airbrush them out of one picture, I think. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, he uh, he liked the outdoors. He he, he enjoyed the California, the, the backwoods, and the, up on the mountains and so on. That was a wonderful country for him. And and uh, so he he was. Uh, but he, he he I'd say natural causes. Yep. Another question over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl, you've uh, obviously written several books over the years. What attracted you to read Railton as a subject to write a book on? Well, I had, I had pictures cut out of Life magazine, pasted on the wall of my room from the 1947 uh, uh, record attempt. Maybe the 39, too. I, I'm not sure. Probably the 39 as well. I, I, I just, I've always considered his uh, Railton special to be the best engineered car ever conceived. I just—I don't think anyone has ever, designing for a purpose, anyone has ever surpassed the amount of thought and consideration that he put into every cubic inch of this car. Uh, so it's always been my, my feeling that it, uh, it really was his, uh, uh, this, this had to be an amazing person who designed this car. Um, and and uh, I, I would have, you know, one, one day I would have just gotten around to writing a book about that car. But it turned out, with Sally's uh, interest and in her research and so on, that we, we made a book about Reed. <laughs> which, and we included the car, of course. Um, and as I say, I did I did write about Reed for Automobile Quarterly in 1972, something like that. Um, and uh, I got a lot of satisfaction from doing that. And now I've written something that's uh, 40 times longer than the article I wrote at the time.
0: One more question, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Yes. That, that brilliant AQ story that inspired you, you. You interviewed Reed on that time. Could you just tell us a little bit about the man?
1: Uh, I spoke to him on the phone. Oh, on the phone. Yeah, I did. Uh, my friend Dean Batchelor. Uh, and, I, and I explain in the book that uh, Dean Batchelor had designed a Bonneville car that, that mm-hmm. took a lot of ideas from the EX-135. And I don't think um, uh, Dean had, had seen Railton at that time. But, uh, but later on, he did. He did go up to visit him. And I got his contact details from, from Dean. And, uh, and I, I had a phone conversation with him, uh, which was uh, very helpful. There are a number of quotes in the book, from, including the last sentences that are, that are from my phone conversation.
0: I, mean, I wonder if Sally can tell us a little bit about her father and his character. I mean, how I mean, He amazed had any time for children?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, more than anything else, he was funny. And I don't think that ever comes across, he used to make John Cobb. His feet went up in the air. He was laughing so hard. He was
0: funny. He was considerate. He was fair-minded. He listened to one. He said "Well, the music. Yes, he was very musical. He played the violin. He had a nice voice and had probably the most sophisticated speaker system, the stereo
1: system, in the Bay Area. Um, and he would—they would give him records to try because he knew he could. They might be good or bad or, or not so good, and he had to take them home to check out on his system. So half of them went back. Um, I don't know. He was an absolutely marvelous, marvelous man. Yeah, Wonderful true. father.
0: I think that's the end. Carl and ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Now, one, one final thing that we'd like to do. Um, Sally and I had several conversations via the phone, and um, we let her know that a couple of weeks ago, our director and chief executive, uh, Alan Wynne, we had an evening here, and we, uh, when he retired, and we uh, auctioned an original painting of the Napier, of our Napier at Broughton. And Sally wanted to bid for it, and I said to her, mm, probably not a good idea. I couldn't let her know, because we've had another one done for you. So, if you'd like to come up, if you wondered what was behind the checkered flag, this is by our artist-in-resident who's here tonight, John Wuer. John, if you're still here, thank you so much for doing this. Sally, that's for you. It is a limited edition for you to take back home. Thank you very much indeed. That's an absolute pleasure. Me. Photographs okay. Get Simon's ear in at the same time. Lovely, all yours. Thank you. That's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being with us this evening. Okay, next highlight raffle time. Don't worry, there is a can of WD40. Good man. Thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, you in a great audience. There's one person I want to thank. That's Rebecca Lapard for helping me create this evening's event. Thank you for your time. And thank you. See you again. And the books are on sale. Eric's just waving at me. The books are on sale at a phenomenal discount, and they will be signed. So form an orderly queue. Thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen.